word of God for our consideration this morning comes to us from Peter's first letter, chapter 2, beginning at verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, the people who are God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. At one time you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. At one time you were not shown mercy, but now you have been shown mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and temporary residents in the world to abstain from the desires of the sinful flesh which war against your soul. Live an honorable life among the Gentiles so that even though they slander you as evildoers, when they observe your noble deeds, they may glorify God on the day he visits us. This is the word of the Lord. We pray. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Your fellow redeemed friends in Christ Jesus who has called us out of the darkness into his marvelous light. You've no doubt noticed that in recent years one of the foundational pillar truths of all society, a truth that has been accepted by every generation that has walked on this earth since the beginning of time has come under attack by the relativistic, moralist, immoral, and postmodern spirit of this age. And of course, I'm talking about the, the foundational idea that there are only two genders and that you are either one or the other. And I say it's under attack by the spirit of our age because if you observe how this has played out, especially in our own country, you can see that this must be a demonic spirit that is driving this sexual and gender revolution. And it's led to a, a really an identity crisis in our country, hasn't it? You see, people are in crisis with choosing which bathroom to use or which locker room to use or, or which uh, athletic events that a certain person can participate in. Or even most drastically, it's led to some people deciding to have perfectly healthy body parts cut off or removed or altered. It's really an identity crisis, isn't it? But it's only symptomatic of a far deeper identity crisis. This is just one small way in which it's manifested that our world, by nature, is separated from God. And as creatures who are separated from their creator, we don't really have any clue or any sense of what our true identity is. And so I think as you see this, this movement, it's really a longing for identity, a longing to belong to something or someone. It's, it's inherent in all of our hearts that God created us, and they know that, but they don't exactly know where to find him. Now, it's understandable that people would be searching for identity, right? It's an important thing. It's who you are. So who are you? How do you identify? Male or female? Son or daughter? Husband or wife? Mother or father? Are you a high school dropout or have you obtained your doctorate? Do you have some line of work that you identify yourself as? If someone asks you, who are you? Do you say, well, I'm an artist or I'm a mechanic or I'm a father or a mother? How do you define yourself? Today, Peter helps us to define and understand our Christian identity. At the root of this current movement and this current 
identity crisis is, is the debate between subjectivity and objectivity. Subjectivity is something that is, is, in my, in, is in the eyes of the beholder, so I get to choose it. Objectivity is something that is true no matter what anyone says about it. Our world, though, as you've no doubt noticed, has elevated or prioritized subjectivity over objectivity. Saying that what you think or what you feel about yourself or anything else, that's the most important thing, not what is actually absolutely objectively true. So, for example, the world will allow me to identify myself as a Caucasian heterosexual male Christian. The world has no problem with me identifying myself that way, but not because those are objective things, that those things are true no matter what I think about myself. And because they are only subjectively true in the eyes of the world, well, I can change them tomorrow if I want, right? That's really at the root of this debate, is subjectivity versus objectivity. And we know how crazy that is. We know that things are true or not true on an objective basis. Now, it's dangerously absurd for people to believe that line of thinking, right? What's even more dangerous is when people, sinful humans like us, think that we get to define ourselves before God, that we get to tell him who we are. Now, on a, a grander scale, that takes place in cults like the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons, who have hijacked the name of Christian, even though they are not Christian, they do not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he is the Savior of the world, and yet they have the gall to tell God, no, we are Christians no matter what you say about us or what your word says about us. But it's true on a smaller scale, too. There are those who, who hardly ever or, or never step foot in a church and yet would call themselves Christian even though one of the essential elements of Christian behavior is to be receiving the means of grace, to be receiving the absolution and the sacrament, to be hearing the word of God preached. For someone to allege that they are a Christian when they have no desire to receive those things is just a lie. It's a mistaken identity. Of course, there could also be people who are in church faithfully every single week, and yet in their hearts they hold an idol. Maybe the idol is power or popularity or wealth. Now, outwardly, they could look like they deserve the title Christian, but inwardly there is something other than the one true God sitting on the throne of their hearts. It's also possible for each of us, in a way, to be a lot like Augustine. To come here and genuinely want to be absolved of our sins, to genuinely want to receive our Savior's body and blood for the strengthening of our faith, and yet, when we walk out those doors, we say the famous prayer that Augustine said. He said, as a young man, Lord, make me good, but not yet. In the sense that even as we are absolved of our sins here, we don't really intend to change our sinful lives out there. It's an identity crisis. Whenever a creature determines that they are going to define themselves before their creator, that is a sin. Just think about it. It's that very sin that led to the downfall of Satan, right? He, didn't, he was not content to be a good angel of God, and in his rebellion, God tossed him out of heaven and tossed him into hell. It's that same 
thing that caused Adam and Eve to fall into sin, wasn't it? Adam and Eve, especially Eve, wasn't content to be what God created her to be. I have, he said, I have created you to eat from any tree in the Garden of Eden, but Eve, led by the, led by the devil, didn't want to do that. She wanted to take her identity into her own hands. It's that same thing that has led so many Christians to, call, to fall from faith. That thinking that says, I get to tell God what kind of a, a person I should be able to be. I should be able to twist and mold the, the term, the, the label of Christian into whatever I want it to be. And that's why you can drive past many churches, especially here in the Dane County area, that proudly uh, display rainbow flags. They have molded, they have, they have twisted what it means to be a Christian into their own image, right? When we were made in the, we were made in the image of God, not to create God in, <coughs> excuse me, in our own image. So we don't get to define ourselves. God defines us. And he only has two categories that Peter mentions here. He says, at one time you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. At one time you were not shown mercy, but now you have been shown mercy. At one time we were nothing. We were like those Israelites in slavery in Egypt. They were not a people. They were nothing. Until God came and got them and showed them mercy. At one time as we were born into this world, there was nothing we could do for God. There was no way we could find God or choose him or make a decision for him or earn his love or his mercy. Now, it's not that we lacked an identity. We were born into this world with an identity because we were born into this world in the image of Adam. We were born as sinners. So if you, if you want to think of it this way, the only identity we actually own is that of a damned sinner. But we don't identify like that anymore today. What changed? Did we make some sort of a decision? Did we somehow convince God to change his mind? Did we do some magnificent work that caused us to become Christians? Not according to Peter. Do you notice there's one three-letter word in verses 9 and 10, and it's in there three times. It's the word but. Three times, but, but, but. What stands behind that but? God does. He called us out of the darkness of unbelief into his wonderful light. Peter fleshed that out a little bit at the beginning, at the introduction of this book. He said uh, that he ad he's addressing the elect who are temporary residents in the world, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. He's really talking about conversion there, isn't he? And who is active in conversion? It's the triune God. God the Father does the choosing, Jesus Christ does the, the purifying, and the Holy Spirit comes to us in the means of grace to do the sanctifying, to create that spark of faith and to keep that, that flame of faith going through the means of grace. God is the actor there. Now whether you can actually pinpoint that, that minute or that day when your conversion took place, that doesn't matter. I think as Lutherans, most of us would say, well, it was when I was baptized, and that would be completely accurate. But the important part to note is that we did not choose God, but God chose us, merely out of his grace. He showed us mercy in calling us to faith and making us his people. Again, I think that's kind of an abstract thought, isn't it? What, what does it mean to be the people of God? 
Well, that's what Peter goes on to define. He says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, the people who are God's own possession. There are four different titles there. He says, you are a chosen people. Now, our world can tolerate just about anything except discrimination. Our world is intolerant of discrimination. Isn't it interesting that God practices discrimination? Out of 8 billion or so people walking on this earth today, he chose you. He chose you. And it wasn't because of your skin color. It wasn't because of your intellect. It's not because of what degrees you hold. It's not because of how lovable you are or were. Because none of us is very lovable in the eyes of God. And yet look around. Not only at our church, but look at churches around the world. The Christian church is the most diverse organization in the world. Filled with people of all colors and all languages and one of the two genders, the the Christian church is as diverse as it gets. But God didn't choose us for any of those qualities. He chose us merely out of his mercy. As Paul said, the Lord will show mercy to those on whom he will show mercy. The very fact that we are here, that we are able to hear the word of God and receive the sacrament is evidence, is proof of that fact. You are a chosen people. You are a special possession of God. You are a royal priesthood. Now in the Old Testament, the only ones who could actually personally approach God and offer prayer and sacrifices were the descendants of Aaron. The, only the priestly class could approach God. And so if you wanted to offer up a prayer, you had to come to the temple and they would offer incense on your behalf. If you wanted to offer a sacrifice, you brought the lamb, but they were the ones who actually did the slaughtering of it. But in the New Testament, God has thrown out that rule book. You don't need to come to a priest. You don't even need an altar. You don't need a robe to bring your prayers before God. You can pray directly to God through Jesus as your mediator. You don't need an altar on which to offer your sacrifices. Your life is a living sacrifice. The whole world is your temple. And everything you do, whether you eat or drink or anything else you may do, you can do it to the glory of God. That is your living sacrifice today in the New Testament. You are a holy nation. Really. Holy? And here's where that whole idea of subjective versus objective comes back into play, right? Do you feel holy right now? If you were to turn to your spouse right now and ask, do I look holy to you? What would you say? What would they say? The world is always accusing us of being evil because we're Christians and we hold to the truth of God's word. The devil is whispering in my ear just like he is in yours, saying that you are guilty of more sins than Jesus could ever want to pay for, that God can't possibly love you because of what you've done. Your consciences are torturing you, right? You've, you've had those nights where you haven't been able to sleep because of your conscience nagging at you and bothering you. You've had all those things. So how can we possibly say, how can Peter say we are a holy nation? Well, again, because God has declared that objective fact. While we may not feel holy, God has declared that we are, and he's declared us holy in two senses. He's set us apart from the rest of the unbelieving world. 
When God looks at the world, he sees Christians as his special people set apart kind of like the Israelites after he brought them out of Egypt. And you are also holy because you have been washed in the blood of Jesus. You may see your sins. You may know your sins. You may not be able to forget your sins and neither may your spouse or your friends or your family. But God has forgotten them. So whatever your heart tells you, don't listen to that. Don't listen to your conscience. Don't listen to the devil. You are holy right here and right now. That is an objective fact. You are the people who are God's own possession. That kind of brings us full circle, doesn't it? That we are God's prized possession. It's an important thing to belong to someone or to something, right? Everyone in our world is looking to belong. I think that's part of the reason that this movement is gaining such momentum and, and, and seems unstoppable. Everyone wants to belong to something. You, know, you want to belong to a family, but if your family is broken, you know what the temptation is? is to join a gang. Because gangs are a place where you can belong with like-minded people. Why are people, especially children, giving in to this delusion that you are not your biological gender, or that it can be changed at a whim. I think it's to belong, to have something to stand for, to have a group of people that you belong with that are like-minded. It is sinister and it is devilish, but I really don't think it's that different than when we were growing up. In the 90s, the people wanted to be goth, right? They wanted to dye their hair black and wear black lipstick and all black clothes and chains and wanted to fit in, right? It didn't make much sense and our parents thought, man, you guys are, look like a bunch of fools, but we did it anyway to fit in, right? I think it's, it's something similar to that, that this hopefully, God willing, this is just a fad that will pass. Everyone wants to fit in. You do fit in. You are God's possession. And no matter who, when, what anyone says or where you go in life, that is true. From your baptism to your grave, you are a Christian. That is your identity. Know it and believe it and cherish it and then live it. Peter goes on to say, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and temporary residents in the world to abstain from the desires of the sinful flesh which war against your soul. Live an honorable life among the Gentiles. <coughs> Excuse me. So that even though they slander you as evildoers, when they observe your noble deeds, they may glorify God on the day he visits us. One of the greatest lies that the devil likes to tell us is that when you become a Christian, well, now, you're, now it's smooth sailing. That now the struggle is over. You did the hard part. You got out of the unbelieving world and into the church, into faith. When exactly the opposite is true. When the Holy Spirit plants faith in your heart, that's when the struggle really starts. And Peter says, this means war. We are not really at war with the world of flesh and blood around us. And in fact, if anything, we should pity those people who have believed the devil's lies. We are at war with the person we see in the mirror. We are at war with our sinful flesh, which does not want to live for God, which does not want to be one of God's people, because I want to be my own God. I want to live the way I want to live. This means war. 
We are to abstain from our sinful desires that war against our soul. We are to live honorable lives. Now, who of us can say that we did that? Now, you might say, Pastor, I can't keep sinful thoughts and desires from coming into my head and my heart. And that's absolutely true. No one is denying that. Martin Luther compared sinful desires to birds. He said, you can't stop the birds from flying in your head, but you can sure stop them from building a nest in your hair. What he means is that you can't stop the sinful desires from coming to you, but you can stop from giving in to them. You can say no now. That's what this sacrament is about, is strengthening your ability to say no to the temptations of the devil, the world, and your sinful flesh. And when you fail, you will fail many times, just like I do. Then come on back here. Have those sins absolved. Be strengthened with the sacrament to go out and join the battle once again. But be warned, when you do that, people will notice, Peter says. People will notice that you don't live the way they do. And they'll hate you for it. And they will persecute you for it. And they will call, hurl all kinds of ugly insults at you for it. They will notice it. Don't be surprised by it but rather wear it as a badge that, that is evidence. This is proof that I do belong to God, that I do belong to Christ because people are mocking me for standing firm on the truth of God's word. But remember why you do that. It's not so that people will glorify you. It's so that they will glorify their Father in heaven, so that they will give the glory to God. Now, you're living an honorable life may lead others to ask you why you live that way. Or maybe not. But the purpose is not to make yourself look good. It's not to gain friends. The purpose is to lead others to give glory to God. And this doesn't require some heroic work on your part. If you read the rest of Peter, he describes what this honorable life looks like. And it's very simple. It's giving honor and respect to the governing authorities. It's working diligent, diligently at your job even when the boss is not watching you. It's living as husband and wife in honor in marriage and living out your gender the way God intended it to. In general, it's just living a decent, Christian, upright life. And that is the life that God wants us to live. That is what he has called us to. Our world is going through an identity crisis of sorts. Uh, and it's not surprising because... A world separated from God has no real identity. The more that we can get the message of identity in Christ out into our world, the better off our world will be and the less crisis there will be. But at least for now, you know who you are. You are a chosen people. You are a kingdom of priests. You are God's treasured possession. You are a Christian. 